You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Andrew Mitchell. He's a music supervisor who's worked on over 600 projects, and I think he's licensed something like 7,500 songs. He was amazing to collaborate with on the Looking Glass Wars soundtrack. I'm not sure how I convinced him to to work with me because he worked on Disney's IMAX film Sacred Planet and the award-winning Sharkwater, but he's that kind of guy when... Art calls, he shows up. He's done video games, documentaries. This guy's done everything in between. He's worked with all these um, musicians and co-producing albums or producing albums or compilations. And that's what we did on the soundtrack. And that's what we're going to talk about. Music, Alice in Wonderland, collaborating with remarkable artists and creating art. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hi. Hey, buddy. Let's go back. You came to my office that was on the fifth floor on Wilshire, right? Uh, when we were when I was doing yes. when we were doing Wicked. That was two thousand, I think. Well, that's crazy, my friend. That's twenty three years yeah. ago. Yeah, I know. And this is the craziest part: is that I remember so clearly about uh, getting the phone call from Stumpy and he was giving me the background and story about this film and that, you know, you need to take a look at it and, you know, do something different, work your magic. And so when I got the, 
with the film, I was like, what exactly um, do you want me to do? And he's like, I don't know, just put anything you want. ABBA, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, just put it in there. It's not going to be necessarily licensed, but just, you know, do your flair. But also do keep in mind that some of these songs you might have to license in case he likes it. So that was such a great introduction to like working with you and, and, and then hearing your response and talking to you, you were just like over the moon with, you know, that funky Porcini and Amon Tobin and all that stuff that was just made the film to a whole new level. I want to set that up for, for our listeners because, um, you know, uh, so what you're talking about is uh, Greg Stump, who has, you know, directed and produced uh, these fantastic ski movies. Um, and I knew Stumpy back from my ski days. And I think I was in Vancouver and they're at a film festival and there was a midnight screening. Um, I believe that's when Stump might have seen seen the movie. And, you know, I was, we were having a few issues with the way that the movie had turned out. And there were no real pop songs in it at the time. It was all orchestral and fantastic music by um, uh, Cliff Martinez, and who's gone on to become, you know, a big music composer. And Stump introduced us because you were doing music on his films or just doing, you were a music supervisor. Just fill me in a little. Yeah, I was working with Stumpy and being completely inspired by everything that he was doing. And I spent a large chunk of my childhood in Whistler and uh, skiing. And one of the first films that I did was uh, a documentary on the first ever world extreme snowboarding competition in Valdez, Alaska. And I think we had a premiere in Whistler in the town center and Stumpy came to it. And then, you know, and then he found out that I did the music for free. And then next thing you know, I'm making a compilation cassette for him for uh, P-Tex Lies and Duct Tape. I opened up the cassette, the A-side, with a song called I Hate My Job by the Wingnuts. And although we didn't use that song in the film, we just ended up, he, he just immediately thought, okay, this guy's on the same page as me. Stumpy and I ended up working very closely and the last film we did together was 2012 with uh, Legend of Oz. So we did, I don't know, five, six films together, plus a whole bunch of like corporate stuff and uh, corporate videos for Whistler and Aspen. And was that was that the main was that the main music supervising gig that you were doing uh, work that was sort of based in the ski culture and the ski world before you and I? Work together or were you doing other films no and- it was pretty phenomenal because uh when i did a couple of films people in the community saw what i was doing and they everybody i talked to was having problems with music you know it's mm-hmm. like oh i want to get this band. you know it was such an issue and the guy that i met on the first film that uh, i worked on um he was a musician and he was also doing the mastering of the first film that I did with sound design. And uh, he developed into a very close personal friend and he was in, he was signed to network and they just did a, another signing with IRS. And they were basically the first band from network records to get a, a U.S. deal. And so he 
had to line himself up with a lawyer and uh, which was Jonathan Simpkin. And so Jonathan taught me everything about licensing music and what master and sync was and all that stuff. And of course, Jonathan uh, ended up starting 604 Records with, uh, with Chad of Nickelback. And so basically for four or five years, I was doing music supervision, but I had no idea what it was actually called. Um, I just <laughs> That's put great. my name on the credits as music consultant. I'd had like, I didn't know what the terminology or what the thing was until somebody finally came up to me and said, Hey, are you a music supervisor? And I was like, you know, what is that? <laughs> and so I was, yeah, I, I mean, it just turned out that all my friends were making films and you know, next thing you know, I'm like licensing music, like left, right and center film after film. And then that led into surfer TV and Todd Lynch and, powder magazine and it just kept going on and on and on and on and then uh eventually got into you know video games and uh imax films and it just yeah it just kind of went wow you had a lot of experience in that that indie space um and so when uh we were working on wicked you know, which I'll tell people is um, a movie. It's a psycho thriller about a teenage dream girl who seems to be taking her mother's place after losing her in a brutal, unresolved murder. And Julia Stiles, it was her breakout starring role uh, when it premiered at Sundance and was a, a smash hit. And she got discovered there and went on to star in 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, and right. the director, yeah. And the director and I, Michael Steinberg, um, we had a difference of opinion on, uh, on the music and that's when I brought you in and that, you know, and what I was saying, what you said earlier was true. It was like, okay, uh, do what you want to do with this. Let's see what music, how it affects changing the music and adding adding some new songs, how the film will end up testing. And then you introduced me to all these great bands, uh, Mochibo, is that how it's pronounced, right? Mochibo, Mochibo yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and here was the other part that was really exciting for me, um, was that it allowed me to recreate something that had already been filmed. As a music supervisor, you normally like you submit music and then the editors will edit to the music and work around it and then that kind of thing. And then you end up getting told at the 11th hour that the editor and director have decided to chop that song into three different bits and use it here and there. Whereas Wicked, it was already picture locked. Right. And so I was like, oh. So then I, I started working backwards, like, okay, so I love this song. There's this action and drama that happens. And then I'd go back and then say, okay, I've got 43 seconds to build into that moment of the song. So then I'd go back to 43 seconds in that song and I go, oh my God, I could actually fade it in right here. And so I was working backwards so that the music that I was choosing where the crescendos and, and, the, and the changes of tempo were happening to the dramatic scenes of the picture lock. I had a clean palette and I could, I could use anything I wanted. So I literally, you know, it was, 
a music supervisor's dream to to do something like that to have ultimate creative control yeah you had you had so much fun um with uh with the music uh and the choices there was um Jack off Jill and uh, the Cranes and Juliana Hatfield and the Switchblade Symphony. You know, there was a bunch of songs that were added that were not in the cut, the Sundance cut. But anyway, this is uh, All Things Alice. And the that was the segue for you and I to work on the Looking Glass Wars the soundtrack. And I was doing so much research on Alice in Wonderland and pop culture and was completely floored by how many artists across all these different mediums used Alice as their muse. And in particular in music itself in rock and roll. And, and so I started feeling a little bit jealous that uh, why, if Lewis Carroll has all these artists that are inspired, I wonder if artists would be inspired by the Looking Glass Wars. That's when I reached out to you and that's when things got really interesting and they were hugely enjoyable, you know, to work with you and to work with the uh, all these all these bands and musicians. I really wanted to uh, talk about that experience, but I also wanted to talk about, you know, some of the songs that motivated the two of us to even take on this soundtrack. So as I think I mentioned to you, um, Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit has always been a big favorite of mine. And, um, you know, this kind of blatant psychedelic LSD trip with great lyrics. I mean, one pill makes you larger, one pill makes you smaller, and the ones that mother give you don't do anything at all. Go ask Alice. Alice in Wonderland and songs are everywhere. Um, and so that was that was the impetus to uh, uh, to get us going. And I think I called you and said, okay, w- we got to do something about this. I remember us talking for sure about the uh, the idea and the concept. And of course, back then, there, this was long before streaming platforms. So you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, you know, let's just put a playlist together or whatever. Um, this was back in the in the days of CD compilations. Oh, you sent me so many playlists that were amazing, not just for references for the uh, LGW soundtrack and uh, music, but just to hang out and at dinner time or chill uh and and what was really great and unique uh was that you introduced me to so many bands i had you know i'd never heard of and it was fantastic i mean you know we were originally talking about some of our favorite um bands that uh used alice as uh you know as inspiration as their muse but um these were different these were you know These were bands that uh, would take an idea that we would talk about a theme from the book and and then write and create their own music. And that was super unique. Um, And you were introducing me to, you know, to all those bands. That was also the biggest, you know, the funnest part of my job at that time was to go and find new and undiscovered indie music for two reasons, mainly uh, 
for it to be fresh. No one's heard of it. And, uh, and of course, the motto that I'd always had and how I initially made the first steps into the music business was promoting bands through radio, college radio. I had gotten an environmental folk rock singer, uh, Holly Arntzen in Vancouver, got a grant. Um, and basically, I got hired for a year to promote um, this environmental folk rock singer. And so it was all about like getting new music, getting bands out there, uh, putting Chirons on, getting basically, you know, they're getting free music videos for these sports because, you know, this is still back in the days of MTV. So, and then of course, the upside as well is that when things started moving along and I was started to work with films with budgets and bigger budgets, it was great to be able to, you know, easily have them sign off on both publishing and the masters and, uh, and get them for an affordable rate. So I was always being able to create that balance between making the bands happy and making the, the media producers happy. That was crucial because, you know, as you know, uh, I was trying to do this. It was an experiment and I was doing it on a budget and I wanted to experiment and wanted the artist to be able to have all this freedom creatively and the idea of doing it for a music inspired by a book. You know, usually it's a movie. So that was unusual. And and so that those bands that you had call, um, cultivated relationships with and the technique of finding and promoting bands that played perfectly into what I wanted to try and the budget. Um, and I think one of the first artists that you introduced me to was uh, Cuba. Um, and ultimately he wrote the, uh, To Another World, uh, which is one of my favorite songs and pretty much an anthem to my 20 years of writing inside Wonderland because it was Welcome to Wonderland, Welcome to My World. And right. I I used to use that song um, when I w would introduce myself. Uh, it would be playing in the background when I was at school events. And then I'd introduce myself, you know, welcome to Wonderland, welcome to my world. And uh, I, I love that song. Um, how did you how did you find Cuba and what was the story behind behind him? Um, Cuba. Well, I don't remember exactly how I first met Cuba, but he is a local. He's from Victoria, Vancouver. The music scene in Vancouver was very small in the 90s compared to what it is now, but um, everybody kind of knew everybody. And Cuba was, um, in my opinion, was just one, like, I just could not believe that he wasn't signed and he wasn't like this huge Canadian artist he to this day is just knocking it out of the park i mean uh i didn't send you uh, he sent me recently a few uh scratch tracks or unfinished tracks from this ep that he's working on uh and he's just got a grant and he just released a single on spotify that i'll send to you as well i was fortunate to work on on the craig kelly documentary called let it ride and uh ended up getting some really like huge bands and and there was kuba i wanted him to write an original song for the tail credits because it was uh 
unfortunately, um, Craig perished in an avalanche. And so there, there was, there needed to be something very special to close the film. And so I asked Kuba to write something original for it. And uh, so he ended up just naturally going into the studio and he was like, he sent me this MP3 and he's like, so this is kind of like the song structure and the flow, like, you know, be more than happy to go into the studio and, uh, you know, and like produce it. And I'll just, I'm going to need this amount of money to do it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, what you sent me as it is, is perfect. It's like, it's raw, it's organic, it's natural it's heartfelt and he just nailed the lyrics and in my opinion it's the best song of the soundtrack it's kind of like why i gave you a little bit of a backstory here i've got all these big bands and kuba just nails it out of the park for the tail credits song so it's not surprising to me that kuba would write a track that would you know symbolize your journey for 20 years because he just that is the talent he has and to this day he's still just you know, pumping him out. He's a, he's a natural born writer. Yeah, he's he's he was gifted, and, and there's was a beauty and a haunting quality to the song. You know, it starts with a mass is being sung as thunder is, you know, echoes, and it's really ominous. Um, church bells are you know are rising, and and it takes us into another world, and it's a very very different wonderland. And so the story that I told him I was interested in was. You know, it was during Red's coup and that everything was destroyed and Alice was exiled and her childhood friend has grown up and he's a 20-year-old um, resistance fighter and his world's lost. And he's singing about that loss and that emotion. Then the chorus of the Alicians, who are the people who are the resistance fighters who are keeping faith that Alice will return and uh, to the throne and take down Red's reign, he just was able to sonically, you know, capture that emotion in a really, really beautiful way. And when I heard that song, I knew that this was going to be, you know, a remarkable journey with these various artists. You know, and the songs did this awesome job of hitting the themes of my book um, with all kinds of different music. I think there was you know, trip hop and modern rock and psychedelic um, sound collages and and there was ballads and um, but it all seemed to come together in gel, which I attribute to your ear and your ability to help create this environment for these writers, which was um, pretty awesome. You know, I'd never done that before. I'd never produced music. I was a neophyte, so. You uh, you pulled me along, and there are a lot of really great um, songs. That song "Shattered," that "Silence" did. Silence, yeah. That was, yeah. and and what was great about that song was we used the samplings from the soundtrack, um, from I meant not the soundtrack. I'm sorry, from the audio book. From Gerard, yeah, Gerard Doyle's voice, and you know he was manipulating it. Gerard Doyle had a uh, a, a teenage, um, you know, kid. And, uh, he thought, oh man, I am so cool in our household now. <laughs> so <laughs> here's the other cool part is that, um, shattered was very much tied in with the, uh, 
with the Battle Axe Records crew and Swollen Members and Mocha Only. And they were pretty much like the cool indie Canadian hip hop scene and like we're getting nominated for Junos and la 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 la. So he was really much tied into that whole scene. And, uh, and we had worked on a couple of other things together and, and he was, um, and he kind of was a little bit more on the business side of, of uh, Battle Axe Records. And the other fun part, which just reminded me that we took samples from the audiobook and sent that to Adam Freeland for Burn the Clock, because he ended up doing a, he didn't release his version that he did on his own. But I mean, at the time, Burn the Clock and, and Mind Killer, and those were like huge tracks being played at the time in like in London at Fabric and the big you know, nightclubs there. Well, with that song, wait, for that song, Burn um, burn the Clock, he changed the lyrics and turned it into Burn in Wonderland, right? Didn't that happen with... So he, he, he used the song and made little tweaks to it. Yeah, he took samples from the audiobook and he did change it around. That was an excellent, um, an excellent song. And uh, who did Through the Looking Glass? That was Adam Shake. Yeah, Adam, and that was a that was a um, established song. Uh, I think it had won a World Music Award or um, the album that it was on. No, it wasn't established. It was it was created for this. Adam is just incredibly talented musician and producer and composer. Like, and he's been nominated for a Juno, but he didn't okay. receive it. And he's also been nominated for an Emmy for uh, composing work. And Through the Looking Glass was, yeah, uh, an incredible piece. I mean, as, you know, not to toot our own horns, but I think doing this soundtrack was definitely, for me, one of the greatest experiences because I had done some producing and some, uh, and co-producing of compilations and some artists, but I didn't have, as much creative control as I did with the Looking Glass War soundtrack, because it was it was very organic and it was kind of like, okay, you guys make your selection, make your thing, and then you'd send it to you and you had your notes and then I'd have my notes and then we'd go there and we'd do round two and round three. And it, it was just through the, uh, through the friendships that I had with the artists, it was, it really allowed for this collaborative experience. And it wasn't all about the money and, you know, exposure was just about hey everybody loves Alice in Wonderland and here's this opportunity and here's this book I mean that was one of the things that I would try and offer is that creative freedom even if the money was small that's the upside it's like okay let's have a really dynamic creative endeavor and you know that's where that song puddle came puddles came from because you know where right. a puddle where no puddle should be was uh, a line in my book. And that's how Alice um, finds her way to our world. And that's what made it more unique in terms of a portal from Wonderland to our world. And so that right. was that was a great, fun song because they took that idea and riffed off of it. And then Queen Red um, was another thematic, um, iconic character that we wanted to play with. And I think that's when Fontaine did Sea of Red. Yes, yes. And I mean, interestingly enough, is that, you know, Gemma Luna was, uh, I, I 
from what I recall, Adam Shake had recorded Gemma Luna on those tracks and then sent them to Fontaine to put in his songs. She had an amazing voice. Oh, she still has an amazing voice. She has yeah, an amazing she's, voice, yeah. What is she doing these days? Because um, she's gifted. She is a, uh, an, just an incredibly gifted artist all around. Mm -hmm. um, she's a dancer, performer. She still um, sings. Uh, she does a lot of jewelry and uh, artisans. And uh, she lives in the Slocan Valley uh, of British Columbia. So, I mean, she's in God's country right now. Wow. Yeah, that was yeah. that was a remarkable um, group of really talented people. I I would uh, I would love to get everybody back together, get all the bands back together, and do a follow up. Get um, the band back together. <laughs> you haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo season two based on. The Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? So, uh, Andrew, I need to ask you the one of the real enjoyable parts of doing this podcast is, you know, talking with old friends and collaborators and uh, and asking questions that I never asked uh, while we were working together. Um, and the burning question today is your name and the spelling of Andrew, A-N-D-R-O-O, -O, which is now my producer's favorite uh, spelling of Andrew. I always had used uh, Andrew E W for you know my whole life. I'd done a couple projects with with Greg Stump, and uh, he wanted me to oversee uh, one of his ski tours. Anyways, I got this fax back one day, and it was uh, Ace, his uh, his girlfriend at the time. Uh, she had written on this fax, uh, "Thanks, Andrew," and she included a whole bunch of. O's. It was A and D R O O O. And then I think for our first episode, our first issue, I was like, oh, Andrew, that's kind of unique. And then, and I thought, oh, create a stage name, you know? Um, and so I just started putting my name in, in the credits as Andrew, A and D R O O. And so pretty much it's been my kind of my AKA. So anything that's, you know, media related or uh, it's kind of like my alter life and world and it's kind of to me it represents my creative world yeah that's that that's that's very cool and um and it's a uh, it looks it looks great on uh you know it's a great visual it's very unique because you have an aka and uh lewis carroll that's that was his aka uh, so i'm curious what was your first, do you recall your first introduction to Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland? 
or the Disney Alice in Wonderland, or, or was it was it music? I was quite curious myself because I do have this memory of being in a sort of fantasy world and having this impression, and I was like, "Well, gosh, I oh, I mean, Alice in Wonderland came out long before I was born, and then so did I see it in the theater." And so I Googled it and I was like, oh, okay, well, Disney re-released it in 74. I would have been five, six years old. I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty sure that I went to a theater and saw it. Wow. So you saw the animated um, cartoon yes. first. That's, yes. that's pretty cool. So when you say that you were, you have this feeling of this imaginary fantasy world, um, you think yes. it's coming from that was the first the first influence of falling down a rabbit hole. That's cool. Well, yeah. And as a kid, I mean, um, I had uh, I was surrounded by uh, I was very fortunate to have been surrounded by um, a lot of nature. Um, a good, you know, first thirteen years of my life was surrounded by. By, by water and ocean and mountains and snow and trees and, and, and a farm. And, and so I, I spent a lot of time in that kind of fantasy world. And I also had an older brother of five years and an older sister of seven years and some alternative thinking parents. And so... Wait, wait, wait. What, is, what does that mean? In what way? Not too conservative. Let's just say that. Okay. Um, more definitely more liberal thinking and more adventurous parents and that reflected in my brother and my sister and so everything that you know being the youngest of the family I was influenced a lot obviously by you know what we did the lifestyle and uh, we didn't have a tv so music was very much a part of our world and uh, and my creative world I can't say that there was direct relationship with any of the characters, but I identified mostly with the Mad Hatter. When you talk about an alternative lifestyle or, you know, a kind of liberal parents, your parents probably were letting you run kind of, you know, free. Um, is that is that how you would describe it? That's a great way of putting it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Both my my siblings were were kind of, you know, as an example, like my sister, when she was 16, she graduated early and uh, moved into a cabin in the mountains with no running water or electricity. And her first career choice was to go down to Naropa Institute in Colorado and learn movement therapy. You can now get a degree in movement therapy. And this was like a brand new thing from, you know, Naropa and, you know, so she introduced the idea of being a vegetarian before anybody knew what it was. I mean, she literally had to explain to our family that she wasn't going to eat meat anymore, which was a direct contradiction to, you know, my dad had uh, purchased a 20-acre hobby farm, and uh, we were all about, like, raising a cow and having <laughs> the revolving cow, Daisy, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and having uh, you know chickens and and stuff like that. <clears throat> so my sister led a very alternative life, um, and uh, 
So I got to, I was introduced to some different ways of living at an early age. And my brother was very much, yeah, he was very creative, very adventurous, very extreme in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I could do a whole podcast just on my brother. My mom, you know, got involved in philosophy and did the S program. And, and my dad was, uh, his, he had a civil engineering degree. So he, he had a bit more of a, a grasp on the mechanical aspects of life and, and the workings of, but he also had a very, um, a very liberal minded um, ideals. And so though have, being brought up with that and seeing films like Alice in Wonderland or Lord of the Rings or where these kind of types of fantasy films, I was able to relate to a little bit more. There's a lot of magic and, inspiration and wonder and curiosity especially curiosity in you know what your parents the way that they parented and the environment that you were in and the things that your brother's brother and sister were doing all of it sounds could have been inspired by you know some of Lewis Carroll's own words and um ideas that came out of uh alice in wonderland which i think yeah. is what one of the reasons it's endured so so long it's its ability to transform the everyday life and the culture that's going on in the decade that it's being it's being consumed so and, and especially with in, in music because you know we were talking about jefferson airplane earlier and that whole experimental time of the 60s i think that um that album came out in 67 well i mean and, and, and absolutely and I, it, before i just jump into the music aspect there i think one of the things that i also wanted to touch on is the archetypes that were represented not just in in alice in wonderland but also with lord of the rings and even like making a relationship to even like Star Trek. And uh, I mean, Tolkien and, and Rottenberry, I mean, a lot of those characters were based on archetypes of different or, or represented different aspects of, uh, of the characters or even, you know, the morals of, of how to live life or what's, you know, or explore who you are and those types of things. What's interesting, you know, particularly those three is that, and I believe, big part of their success is that somebody you're no matter where you are from or what your background is there's always a character that you can identify with and there's something that you can like you know and whether you're the intellect and you can you relate to spock or or captain kirk as being like the alpha male kind of decision maker or 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 just you you know those are the types of of films and characters that I, you know, I believe why are such a huge influence. And perhaps there's the esoteric connection to those archetypes as well. And that goes on on a whole other conversation. But um that was, you know, the wonderment of and and the and the curiosity of trying to find who who we are especially if I'm watching, you know, an animated fantasy at the age of five, six years old and having that part, that impression on me of, of living in a fantasy world uh, and being able to, those types of messages. And if you want to get into the kind of the moral of the stories, 
those types of messages are really um, important and, and can be influential. Well, I, I agree that a, a lot of the top, um, you know, the biggest movies and the most successful novels, uh, a lot of them uh, deal with archetypes that are easily recognizable and you can identify with and you can put yourself in the hero's shoes or that that hero's journey and you know themes like who am i which is a big theme and is part of a theme in alice in wonderland i think is really is is really true um is why they work so well so in in the matrix uh which i absolutely loved um you know he was the chosen one that's an archetype that's been used over and over he didn't he didn't know he was um same with uh, luke skywalker he's the chosen one um, and so they have to, they have a lot of obstacles to overcome and they go on this uh, hero's journey. Well, let's not forget about the, the mentor figures and the symbolism and the transformation of the matrix that also goes in with, with uh, Alice in Wonderland as well. Uh, yeah. And, and that, that movie is, you know, it's just filled with Al. I mean, it's everywhere. So it it's basically a version um, you know, of Alice in Wonderland, uh, as I just was watching with my kids, Stranger Things, you know, the upside down, again, uh, a hero's journey uh, into another dimension. It's, those are all ar- archetypes and, and uh, Stranger Things capitalizes on a tone that's really unique. That's an 80s tone that we, we're familiar with and all the references that, um, that the, the show brings up. Um, so it's nostalgic on one hand, but right. you know it's uh, it's a fantastic. Yes, I haven't actually watched Stranger Things, and and it's interesting you mention it because it's come up in conversation a few times over the last six months. It's it, it's terrific. Um, it's emotional, and it you know, and and it's also generational um, because you have the adult characters, and then you have the the teenagers, and they're all on very powerful you know, emotional journeys, whether it's the mother trying to save her son or if it's the, you know, kids um, discovering that there's there's this this world out there and the adults don't believe them. Of course, that's another archetype that's uh, very effective. And, and they utilize all these different um, story threads to to great effect. You should yes. check, you should definitely check it out. Hey, so tell me about um, tell, tell me about your favorite, you know, your, some of your favorite Alice themed um, songs in pop culture. When you have Stevie Nicks or Gwen Stefani, and then Tom Petty or Tom Waits, Lady Gaga, you I mean, there's so many different artists styles, and yet all of them have Alice, the Beatles. They all have Alice influence songs. So let's let's talk about that. Well, I mean, the most obvious one to me is uh, is Jefferson Airplane for sure. I yeah, mean, the white um, and it's kind of like it gets back into you know, basically in 1975, I was six years old. So the types of music and the classic rock that still you know is memorable to this day. I mean, these albums were coming out, uh, or they were very very fresh. And again, so when I was six years old, five years old, my brother was 10. Hmm. And he he was even a bit ahead of his time too when it came to music. And I was blessed with uh, with having, you know, just 
not my siblings and parents having very unique, really good music taste, but we also had a lot of family friends. Um, and one in particular that moved in with us and brought crates and crates of albums and records. And there was a phase of, uh, you know, of the, the San Francisco, the psychedelic scene that came into the house. And of course that was involved, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin and Jefferson Airplane and kind of the whole, uh, Gary Garcia, and, uh, and definitely some of the, the folk rocker, you know, Carol King, and there was just some incredible music that was I was being blessed with. And I just remember listening to Jefferson Airplane and being completely blown away by uh, not just the music, but the uh, but the album artwork. I remember standing out and uh, and I was like, and of course, having this White Rabbit, hearing White Rabbit, it was like, oh, my God, there's a song about Alice in Wonderland. How cool is this? And that was really the first kind of hit re impression that I got of like, oh, wow. So I can't really say about pop culture, like what, how it affected, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about my real first experience. Yeah, which is right. Correlation. And of course, also what came out, you know, was of course the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac. I mean, all of it, they were, they were just blasting out these incredible albums. Fleetwood Mac was uh, very much one of my favorite bands back in the day. And uh, I was fortunate to see them live in, uh, at Wembley Stadium and uh, Stevie Nicks, I'd always loved. The, the thing that I remember most about Alice was just mostly, I mean, she had such these, she created such an environment with her voice and her vocals. And the lyrics were not like the metaphor, the metaphoric aspects of her lyrics really brought in the kind of the, the wonder and beauty of the song with the, with the haunting lyrics and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, with, well, not the lyrics, but the haunting vocals. Do you remember um, that Stevie Nicks uh, had an Alice song on her 1989 album, From the Other Side of the Mirror? She, too, influenced and inspired by Alice. I always liked that. I don't remember the art on on the uh, Jefferson airplane. As a kid, I just remember being fascinated because I used to take uh, the stencil paper and put it over top of certain album covers and stencil them. Oh, and, oh, that's and, that's and then, that's very cool. What would you do with them? With the, uh, uh, with the I was sketches? very much into drawing at that age, and uh, and I remember doing certain albums. I, funny enough, I was I did like Sticky Fingers and Heart and. Manhattan Transfer. I did a mm. whole, I stenciled a whole bunch of different album covers at that age. It was so great having those album collections and flipping through them. We didn't have TV. So it was like, okay, if you're going to listen to music, you got to, you know, you got to look at something. And so that was part of the, the imagination part of, for me and my, uh, I mean, that, that's really why I got into music and it was so natural for me to do what I did was because I had all of this influence from uh, of all these different genres of music from Santana and Carole King to, you know, classic rock to dance hall, reggae, dub, singer, Americana, singer, songwriter, 
Well, that's the reason that you became, that's the reason you became such a good music supervisor. I mean, I mean the, the, that the, deep yeah, experience. Really, that's all I did. And that was such a huge part of my world. And uh, I remember uh, when, when I, the first version of, of, uh, oh gosh, what was the Sony Walkman, but before the Sony Walkman came out, I think it was called the Astral, um, astral something it was like kind of like a small cassette deck um and my dad had bought one of these and was going skiing with these astro decks and this i think it was like a year one or two years before the actual sony walkman came out but i remember taking my dad's um this big kind of cassette deck that was strapped onto his chest and they used to go <laughs> riding with my bicycle oh i remember and, those oh yeah <laughs> as a kid and when the sony walkman came out that's all i wanted was like i i wanted to ride my bike and listen to music and and then of course later in life i ended up uh, getting one to go skiing yeah those were transformative uh especially as a kid in terms of listening to music and being able to go you know in the car right like you said riding a bike or just about anything so I didn't realize uh, how um, Alice influenced the Beatles um, on their. I didn't know that either. Yeah, so on their um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band album, um, on the sleeve, the album sleeve, it featured an image of uh, Lewis Carroll and a bunch of you know imagery um, from Alice, and this imagery suggests. It, you know, comes through in some of their songs like Cry Baby Cry or The Glass Onion. And certainly I Am a Walrus um, is from uh, Through the Looking Glass. So, you know, that, I mean, I was a big fan of the Beatles and um, I didn't put that together until just, you know, a few years ago as I, you know, did research and looked up bands that were influenced by Alice. And Gwen Stefani's um, Alice-inspired um, video you know, what are you waiting for is really a, about a case of writer's block. So I identified sadly, <laughs> sadly with that. But in that story, she's getting assaulted by a, um, a rabbit and being chased around a, you know, maze in this uh, sort of skirtless gown. Um, and then, and then I love that. And then I saw her, our kids played sports together or competed, she was, her kids went to a different school, but suddenly I'm on the sidelines at a, you know, like a, a football game or soccer game. And um, there's Gwen Stefani. And uh, I, I I wish I had gone over and uh, talked to her about that, um, <laughs> about that, uh, about that video, that video, but, you know, I didn't want to interrupt her space with her children. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> And um, and Tom Petty did a Alice inspired "Don't Come Around Here No More," um, and that was a really cool uh, video. So, what do you think it is, though, that people keep coming back to Alice as a as a springboard for their own imagination and their own art? I think it's a natural progression. I mean, for an artist, and although I've only written a couple of songs in my life, but at least when I go into a creative mode, we, we want to tap into that world that we remember. I also get back to the symbolism aspects of Alice in Wonderland and how you, the different experiences can mirror what's going on in our own life. And 
we can add the lyrics or we can do it metaphorically, but I'm sure, imagine how many songs are out there that you don't even know about that were inspired by Alice in Wonderland just through through the inspiration. And, and of course, let's not forget about the psychedelic aspect too, because part of an artist's development is perhaps taking some alternative uh, medicines. Some uh, some pink mushrooms to uh, find inspiration in the Valley of Mushrooms. I'm going to call them mushrooms. I'm going to refer <laughs> them to as more as medicine. Uh, and uh, and that can also be inspired. I mean, imagine, you know, the, the trips that you can have, because obviously you're, go, you know, part of it is delving into the alternative sides of the mind and the imagination and the brain. And so you're going to be able to fantasize or imagine and visualize these things that are happening to you in your alternative world from your memory. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about exploring an, uh, an alternative state of mind, whatever, however you get there, uh, and to see what creativity comes out of that. And if it's cohesive or not, uh, I think a lot of us creatives have have played around with that idea and sometimes it's you know in a dream state and i've just gonna say like when we wake up we've had a dream that's going to inspire us perhaps to do something completely different with our day and whether that is obviously everybody has their own creative outlets and whether they're a painter or a songwriter it's going to come out alice in wonderland the influence and the memories are embedded in a lot of people well, that's that's very very true, and I think that um, you know she r- represents um, a particular kind of journey and a state of mind that people feel themselves in, and and um, and she comes out the other side, and she ends up having a lot of agency and knowing, like having a stronger sense of who she is. Right. Um, but I think um, what you're talking about in bands that in songs that um, have been influenced and whether it's, you know, literal or figurative, you know, my I have a 15 year old daughter and uh, she's a big Taylor Swift fan, like many teenagers. And I didn't know that Taylor Swift wrote a song called Wonderland um, that is apparently, well, it describes a green eyed man that my daughter says is Harry Styles and that their their relationship wasn't exactly what it seemed. And the two jumped into this, this, this love story very quickly and fell down the rabbit hole where nothing's as it seems. And she sings about how the relationship spiraled out of control and how they went mad um, and if you think about Alice in Wonderland, you you know you remember all the madness um, that Alice went through. You know everything is so mysterious and backwards and strange and confusing. That to your point, the song represents that feeling. Um, and I think some of the lyrics that she, you know, wrote is that you know I I I, I wrote these down that um, I reached for you. You were you were gone. I know I had to go back home, which is a big theme in, in obviously in Alice in Wonderland. And uh, you searched the world for something else to make you feel like what we had. But in the end, um, in Wonderland, we both went mad. Right. Um, and and you know she's talking about a relationship. She's talking about a love story. Uh, and. And those those feelings of falling down a rabbit hole, which is why that 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 
that phrase itself is constantly referenced in everyday life. And once you start to pay attention to that, you, you, you hear it every single day. I mean, politicians say it, uh, folks say it to communicate what they're going through today. Yeah, so. yeah. Interesting. I had no idea that Taylor Swift, uh, it's funny enough, I've barely listened to Taylor Swift. I had no idea she had a song called Wonderland. She references the uh, relationship. It's all fun and games till somebody loses their mind or minds okay. until we all lose our minds, which, you know, anybody that's been in a crazy love story can can relate to that. So, um, right. yeah. So, you know, my daughter's trying to, uh, you know, steer me in the right direction with my research. <laughs> <laughs> well, my friend, um, Always good to uh, to catch up and to uh, to talk about what's going on um, in your life. What uh, what's the latest on projects uh, that you're you know enjoying that you're that you're excited about that you're doing right now? I told me you were working on a, a pretty big TV show, as I remember. Yeah, I've gone into uh, the visual aspect of film and um, got involved in the art department. Uh, set decorating, being a dresser, on set dresser. That's cool. That's sort of what your older brother was. You know, that's a left hand turn into another creative aspect of um, making movies and creating art. Yeah, it's. I mean, interestingly enough, to me, it's been uh, a great opportunity to be creative in a whole different way and and, and expressing art and. Uh, very fortunate to um, have been brought up. Uh, I was mentioned before, my dad was a civil engineer and, and my brother in, turned into uh, an incredible uh, craftsman and builder. And I, so I was, I knew a lot of this stuff through osmosis, how to, to do things, build things, make things hang with nothing and, um, and reconstruct things, fix things, build, you know, it was, uh, you're yeah. you're you're describing the uh the soundtrack <laughs> that we uh that we it did is. together build stuff with nothing that's 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 what you did you built a, a 12 track album uh you know very inexpensively with super talented people so uh your skill set it continues just in a little bit of a different medium so when it comes down to it, when I look at what I'm all like my other hobbies and I mean, everything is definitely art related. It's, I mean, I've been building interior water fountains that are from scratch that are very unique and organic. Just started doing as a hobby, putting together a, a YouTube channel with nature videos, getting into kind of the, that sort of realm of relaxation and study and background kind of uh, environments and uh, still dabbling with music, wanting to be more creative in music as opposed to being more on the business side of the music. Right, right. There, there's a lo lot of business stuff you have to do. Right. Yeah, like eighty percent of music supervision is uh, is the paperwork, the communication, the emails, the licenses. A lot of you know, definitely the business aspect of the music business. Just trying to like create opportunities for that and creating opportunities and looking into and hopefully getting into more of uh, creating material. And whether that's, you know, 
creating a, a song or creating a video, it feels like that's sort of my next sort of step is taking the experience that I've had from these two different realms and putting them together in some shape or form and, and wanting not so much about what I'm doing, but more like who I'm doing it with mm. is to, seems right. to be the most important aspect of, of it because, uh, you know, and that's me being the idealistic that I am. There's also uh, survival and paying the bills. Yeah, I mean, we all have to. We all have to balance the creativity with paying of the bills. But it's been really interesting hearing your story and learning about your background and connecting the dots with what you've been doing work-wise and, and your inspiration. Whether it's this nature environment, such a beautiful natural world that you lived in, and how that's influenced this idea that you're creating fountains. And then having, you know, a father that was an engineer and a builder, and now you're taking that aspect of who you are and your history and your family history and using that in the, you know, the set design and the building of that aspect of shows. And then the influences of this alternative, this unrestricted life that your parents afforded you. I really appreciate having this time to learn about that and to learn more about you and also to talk about what a real brilliant um, experience it was working with you and the artists that you brought to the Looking Glass Wars. Thank you for- Oh gosh, Frank, thank you. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was quite exciting getting back to, it's not what you do, it's who you do it with and, and yeah. having you so passionately about uh, about this project and then putting my passion of the music, it, it was just, it was such a wonderful creative experience for me. And so enjoyed it really appreciate uh, everything that you brought to the table too because it you had a very clear direction that was very helpful for me as well so it was a wonderful collaborative experience well on that note i thank you again for uh, being on the podcast all things alice andrew mitchell with two o's i admire your work and uh, appreciate uh, everything you're doing and let's um let's think about that you know let's think about that music for either the tv show i'll definitely call you or maybe we'll do a follow up album <laughs> yes absolutely great to see you frank You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?